0: Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I want to thank my good friend Paul Maxwell before you, before you run out of here, Paul. Every time I hear Paul speak, I feel like I'm at home with that New England flair that he possesses. I've decided, and don't quote me on the theological correctness of this statement, that if I'm wrong and when we get to heaven we don't all speak Spanish, then for sure we will speak English with a New Englander accent. I find a challenge addressing you today, and that is that I want to talk about an issue that perhaps is a bit thorny. And all morning, I've been, I've been thinking what the best way to enter into the space is. And a few moments ago, I had this beautiful experience that I want to share with you. This just happened right now. I walked in to the office back here in the church, and amidst the hustle and bustle that is our campus on a Sabbath morning, it was completely silent and quiet, and I find it so fascinating that there is this space of silence in the midst of our campus as we sing beautiful anthems and we celebrate with prayer and praise. It reminds me a little bit about uh, the book of Revelation. You know that well and oft-quote passage, Revelation chapter 4? Jesus is being magnified the whole choir of heaven is singing holy 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 they're singing worthy is the lamb and as they conclude this beautiful enthronement celebration John says that there's silence in heaven for half an hour And I'm often puzzled by that statement and then it just struck me as I was walking into church that there is something Renewing about silence. There is something that reorients us about in silence. And so I think, and you get to be the guinea pigs because this is the fourth time we do this today, I think that the best way to start today is by holding some space for silence. Just for the briefest of moments. And really allowing the presence of Christ to be embodied in this place. That was my gift for you introverts in the congregation today. Those extroverts of you, you can now breathe. We're back in conversational mode. Now, I want to start our time together by telling you two things. The first one is we are going to be living and experiencing the text today as it is found in the first epistle that John writes to his church. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 of the third chapter, as so was marvelously read by, by Paul. The second thing that I need to tell you is that in order to do this faithfully, we perhaps need to spend just some brief time talking about, well, talking about you and me. And what I mean by that is that we often spend a lot of time debating about these questions and answers that we are 100% sure about. I'm going to guess that At some point in your life, you've had a debate or a discussion with somebody, and you are so sure that you are correct that that debate drove a wedge in the relationship. Now, I'm not talking about issues of preference or these quirks that we all have, or maybe these, well, these obsessions that make you uniquely you. I'm talking about the real questions, the questions that you are sure you know the answer to. questions like, is it better to open your gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning? Those of you who do it on Christmas morning, sorry to say, you are wrong, it's Christmas Eve. Or what about this one? This, ha- this one happens at my home a lot. Um, do you, s- what do you do with ketchup? Do you store ketchup in the fridge? There's one person, two people, a couple of you. How many of you store ketchup in the cupboard? for shame Well if that's caused the wedge in your relationship just know this Heinz just tweeted this this week ketchup is supposed to be kept wait, ready for it In your fridge Those of us those of you who keep it in your cupboard enjoy food poisoning <laughs> But perhaps no issue that is hotly contested at home has created more wedges, more strains, more frayed relationships than the following. I would venture to guess that you are one of two people. If you identify with the picture that is going to appear behind me in a moment, congratulations, you are a righteous man or woman. You are a true son or daughter of God. Well done, you are a person after my own heart. This is the right way to live. The problem is not all of us are that type of person. There's sadly this other kind of creature living out there. It is my feeling that some of you might be even in this sanctuary that identify with this. And if that's you, you've come to the correct place. There is forgiveness. (laughs) There is grace. We're going to pray for you. And we're not going to touch you because that's just nasty, but we're going to pray for you. As I started thinking about these things that I was so sure about, these answers to questions that I am 100% convicted of, I started to think that we spend a lot of time worrying about these things. You know, just this last week, my son and I went to run some errands, and my eldest is really into reading right now, and so he turned the light in the cabin of my car, and he started reading a book. And we're driving through down the street, and I turn and I tell him, son, you need to turn the light off. He says, Why? I said, Well, it's illegal to have the light of your cabin on as you drive. He tells me, No, it's not. I tell him, Yes, yes, it is. And so, as any civilized pair of people, we settled our debate. The only way you can, we we went to the internet. Turns out, it's not illegal (laughs) to have your light on as you drive. My parents were either just cheap, or they didn't want me to read while they were driving, because I grew up believing this. You know what else I grew up believing? 100% sure that if you ate a watermelon, and you swallowed the seeds... (laughs) Ah, you too that a watermelon would grow in your, in your stomach. <laughs> and I was so devastated by this church because I realized that I have spent so much time of my life worrying about the seeds that I haven't enjoyed the sweetness. And that has robbed me of some marvelous moments. You know what else was really overrated since I'm on this, on this already and I just thought about it? Quicksand. So if you, read a, if you read a book or you watched a cartoon, you watched a movie, you knew that the great threat to people that were adventurers in the forest or the jungle wasn't malaria or animals, the big chaos of the time isn't hate speech or global warming. It was quicksand. And I can't tell you how many Sabbath hikes I had that were interrupted by this petrifying fear that somehow I would step into quicksand. And you chuckle. But the reality is so many people of faith Good people, moral people, people who are attempting to follow God in the best way they can, have failed to enjoy the journey because of the quicksand and to savor the sweetness because of the seeds. And so we're starting a new sermon series this summer. And the point of it is to go back to basics to these questions that you are sure you have the answer to to these concepts that we are certain we understand and the hope is that somehow some way we can see the seeds and notice the quicksand through the lens of the life death and resurrection of Jesus Now, at the outset, I have to tell you, this isn't to say that we are Pollyannish. It would be irresponsible for me to tell you that there is no brokenness in the world, that there is no suffering, that pain doesn't exist. What I can tell you, though, is that those experiences are felt in markedly different ways when you have the capacity to see them through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what are some of these stories that we tell each other? Well, how about this one? God created human beings and then gave us a list of things. The list got ever bigger. And the invitation in that list was to do some things and to avoid doing some other things. And if we can get it right, if we can accumulate enough points, if we have a positive balance in our righteousness account, at the end of time, we will make it to heaven. The sad reality, however, is when it comes to human beings, the church follows more Augustine than it does Jesus. You see, Augustine used to believe that you and I were totally depraved creatures, and that if left to our own devices, we would spiral out of control, and the the world would implode. Now, Augustine was partly right, but nothing is ever that simple. I think you know that already. Because human beings are paradoxes. As was beautifully prayed by my colleague, Joey, A few moments ago. The church is both meek and mighty. Human beings are both the pinnacle of creation and its biggest threat. Now when we talk about the story of who we are and it comes to sin reflecting our brokenness, we typically go to a particular text in Scripture. It's a helpful text. After all, when we're doing a baptismal study, it provides for an easy, clean answer when attempting to develop our understandings of what sin is. I'm, of, I'm of course, referring to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. There, John says, sin, every, everyone who sins commits lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Some other version says, everyone who commits, sin transgression, transgresses, because sin is the transgression of the law. And I think, again, that's partly right, but there's a nuance that needs to be understood. And in order to understand the nuance, what I want you to do with me this afternoon is turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 1. Now, verse 1 begins with this statement. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. In order to explain this whole concept of sin, we have to start from the beginning. And in order to do that, I need to geek out with you on some Greek. Is that okay? Can we geek out, geek out on some Greek together this afternoon? There's like three people that are excited about Greek. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, so for you three that are excited about Greek, in this whole passage that was read as our scripture reading this afternoon, there is only one command. And the command appears at the very outset of the passage. That word that your Bible translates as see is actually an imperative. It's a command. So, what God is requesting his church to do through John is to see. And it's not see and consider in this mushy, kind of sentimentalistic way where you're like, yeah, I I see you. Rather, what John is trying to say is, hey, church, wake up, pay attention. Forget everything else. This is what you need to focus on. Focus on this with laser-like precision. And now that he has our attention, the church turns and says, what are we supposed to focus again? What is the command? The love that God has lavished upon us. When I read that this week, I was moved. Because all that God is asking me to do is to take some time to consider how much I am loved by him. And then he says that we should be considered children of God. My status as a child of God is a direct result Of God's love for me and I know you've heard it that before but I want that to sink in to become part of your sinews you are a child of God because God loved you first and I don't know how we miss this I don't know how we continue to preach message after message where we say God's grace is the response to our sin problem. As if God had this issue of sin that came up and said, well, I guess I have to be graceful. Grace isn't God's response to the sin problem. Grace is who God is. And he says, consider that, that you are my child. And what is truly revolutionary is that in the economy of heaven, the the reward precedes the performance. The reward precedes the performance. That doesn't happen anywhere else. If you're a student, your grades will reflect how much you study. If you work for someone, your salary, your salary will be reflected by how many hours you work. But in the economy of heaven, the reward, your status as a child of God is independent of what you do to achieve that status. And I've been thinking all week of a analogy that I can use perhaps to illustrate that for you. And the best thing that I could come up with is something that I know you have seen. Picture this, we're all sitting at a table, and we're surrounded by children, we're at a birthday party, and that table is packed high with goodies. You've got cake, pie, ice cream, muffins, brownies, and every single one of those child children is salivating over the prospect of eating this amazing food. And then mom and dad come into the room. And they come in and, you know, mom and dad are carrying a tray full of vegetables and you know what's coming next, as your heart sinks and you're deflated, and you say to yourself, <sighs> because you see it, you see that, bro- that wilted broccoli. I'm going to turn over here because my health conscious friend is, is on this side of the room. You see this wilted broccoli, these yellowish carrots, and I still don't really know what kale is, but it's there. <laughs> and mom and dad say, you have to eat your vegetables before you eat dessert. <sighs> but on occasion, not always, but every so often, mom, or dad, mom and dad will put the tray to the side and say, today, because it's your birthday, you get to have dessert first. See what matter of love the Father has lavished upon us, that he lets you have dessert first. I know the analogy breaks down. If you don't like sweets, if you, in your case, the Lord lets you eat quinoa first and then the rest of your meal. So then the question becomes, what is sin? Well, I'd like to propose to you that sin is three primary things. First and foremost, sin is our refusal to recognize the relatedness that exists between God and us and between each other. You see, not only is it tragic that the church has more in common with Augustine than it does with Jesus, what is also tragic is that our understandings of performance and the Christian life are more in line with the Greeks than, were, than they are with the gospel. Now, let me explain that to you. In Greek thought, perfection was an attribute that you could ascribe to an individual or an object. In other words, you had to strive to be perfect. And in order to strive to be perfect, you needed to prepare. But in the Hebrew mindset, the idea of perfection is a little bit different. You know, back in the beginning of time when God creates and he makes the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and he says, it was tov, it was good. What, he is actually, what the author is actually talking about Isn't perfection as something that exists inherent within us? Rather, for the authors of Scripture, perfection and goodness are related to the spaces that exist between us. Perfection and goodness live in the spaces between us. And what does that mean? Well, that means that perfection is not something I strive in. Perfection is something I live out in community. And when you think about that, it makes sense because ultimately what sin does is it frays your relationships with God and with each other. What sin does is it isolates you. What sin does is it makes you feel inordinate amounts of shame and shame causes you to separate. Sin is your refusal to recognize the relatedness that exists between you and God and between each other but the text continues so it's really interesting because if you read the grammatical construction of verse 1 you'll see something you'll see the imperative which is the primary ca- clause behold what matter of love god has lavished upon us then you have a subordinate clause and a result as a result of this love You are called a child of God. But then you have a conjunction, an adverbial conjunction, and that means that as a result of you being a child of God, something else happens. And it's right there in the second part of that text. You you can read it in front of you. It says, because of this, the world will not know you, for the world did not, what? Know him. Well, if God wants to be known and wants to know you, then it makes sense that this idea of of knowledge and to be known is set in opposition to the world's idea of what it takes to be known. So how do you get known in the world? Well, you amass more, you consume more, you gain more influence. And God is saying, no, your status is independent of all of that because the reward precedes the performance. But that's not where the text ends. Verse 3. All who have this hope, i.e. the hope of Jesus, in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So after he's settled, out, who we are after he's given us our mark our marching orders he says okay now this is what you need to do and he talks about purification but again purification is the result of possession you possess a hope th- therefore you purify yourselves and here's the problem with churches we got it backwards somehow are you with me do you want to be a pure church I should hear yes. So we're going to try that again. Do you want to be a pure church? Then make sure we're a hope-filled church. Because if we are not hope-filled, we can't be pure. Too often we focus on the purification when it's our job to live and breathe hope into people's lives. That's the purpose of church. Sin is opposition to grace. You know, grace, the best picture of grace, you know this. It's the father waiting at the door, tiptoes, cloak in his hand, signet ring ready. The whole staff at home is on standby because he might come today. And then he sees him and he walks out and he hugs and embraces him covered in the slime of swine. That's grace. Sin is opposed to grace because sin says you need to take a bath before the Father will put the robe on you. breaking down these relationships that we are to have with one another. Sin is ultimately opposition to grace, dear friends. So you're asking, well, what about that oft-quoted text? You know, the text that we always hear when we're talking about sin. Anyone who commits sin commits transgression because Sin is the transgression of the law. I have to geek out with you on Greek a little bit again. The NIV probably isn't the best translation of that particular verse. Because the word that appears in your Bibles as commit is a Greek word that, well, it's a Greek word poieo. And Poyeo doesn't really mean commit. Poieo means to make or to create. Poieo appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, on the ver- in the very first verse. You know, the, you know the text. In the beginning, when God Poieo, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, when God created. See, God creates this world that is to be lived in harmonious relationships. Opposition to grace also creates something. It creates a world where I no longer see you as bearing the image of God. Rather, I see you as a thing that I can exploit. To sin, then, is to attempt to create an alternate reality that differs from the reality that God has called us to live in. And when we do this, we lose our capacity to adeptly reflect what the body of Christ is. I mean, look around you, folks. We are so diverse. I was racking my brain this week trying to think how I could describe our congregation. And I realized there is no way. And it is that diversity, that wealth that allows us to more appropriately reflect what the image of God is. We need all of you. Sin, however, ultimately, isn't just our refusal to relate with God. It isn't just our opposition to grace. Sin, ultimately, is, your, is our inability to go deeper. Ronald Raulheiser, a writer of religion, says that you and I living in this society are currently hurrying ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Microsoft conducted a study in 2013, and it noted that our attention span is a whopping eight seconds. Those of you who are still with me, thank you, you've made it. Because relationships take digging deeper. Because understanding necessitates digging deeper. Because grace needs deeper experiential realities. Now, the problem is we don't like exceptions. We actually do very badly with exceptions. This is why I used to hate the English language. Because any other sane language, you start with the rules, then you move on to the exceptions, right? Miguel, isn't that right? Miguel's shaking his head. English, that's not how it works. English, you start with the exceptions, and you move over to the rules. And really, the rules don't really work, because there's an exception to the exception to the rule, which lends lends English to be a very interesting for people who are not native speakers. I mean, think about this sentence. The soldier deserted his desert in the desert. That's an English word. Or how about this? The physician bound the wound around the wound. Or my personal favorite, Chris, you're going to love this one. The attorney objected to the object. English is all about the exceptions. And exceptions are great because, see, what what these exceptions do, what exceptions and language do, dear friends, is they force us to recalibrate. They force us to rethink, they force us to reinterpret. That's what digging Deeper is about. It's about our capacity to hold within us the paradox. Or about our ability to deal with the exceptions. The truth of the matter is universal laws which we love so much, they're great for science. They're really lousy for faith. So you might be thinking, okay, so what do I do? You know, sin, I get it. It's about relationships. I get it. I don't want to be opposed to, to grace. I understand. I want to just meditate on how much God loves me. But how do I do that? You know, C.S. Lewis, in that wonderful analogy about how the enemy thinks, the screw tape letters, has the senior demon reminding the junior demon that hell is a kingdom of noise. And I've been thinking this week, trying to figure out how it is that Jesus the ultimate exception. That Jesus, the prime paradox, how did he deal with sin? And I realized that the way Jesus deal, dealt with sin is in Scripture. Think about Luke chapter 4, right? Jesus is there. He hears the voice. This is my son. In him I am well Pleased. And then Luke tells us that he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he spent 40 days and 40 nights alone and without eating. And then Satan came to tempt him. And you know how I used to read the story? I used to say, man, that's so like Satan, right? He's going to tempt Jesus at his weakest Jesus didn't go into the wilderness to test himself. Jesus went into the wilderness to strengthen himself. How do I know that? Because right after, Jesus comes back to Galilee, heals a bunch bunch of people for a whopping one day, and then goes back into the wilderness. The way you confront sin... Is by engaging in a long forgotten christian practice called solitude so as you came in this week uh, this morning or this afternoon you received a piece of paper that looks like this do you all have it there we go if not we have some extras And the point of this is uh, taking from the writings of Stephen Covey, Stephen Covey of Seven Habits of Highly Successful People fame, who states that the way you achieve inner peace is by finding harmony between your values and your schedules. And so what I want to do with you this summer, or rather what I want to invite you to do with me, is to develop a rule of life. So on one of the sides of your piece of paper, you'll find uh, the four ideas that we're going to be revisiting over this next summer. And there I simply want to invite uh, you to write some gleanings that you've had. Today we talked about sin. But then what I really want you to focus on is the other side of the piece of paper. What I want you to do there is I want you to consider that which is most valuable to you, and then I want you to think of some practices that speak to those values that you deeply have. And this week, I want you to consider the practice of silence and solitude. Now, I know it's complicated. I know it's difficult. I have kids who walk into my room at 5.30 every single day, Saturday, Sunday, 4th of July, National Day of Prayer, it doesn't matter. 5.30, they'll, they can go to bed at 1 a.m. in the morning and at 5.30, they'll be at my door saying, Daddy, we're hungry. But the way we strengthen ourselves, the way we connect and we are known to God and then available to know each other is through silence. So before we close... I want to see if it's possible to have you close your eyes just close your eyes right there where you are and i want you to think what it means to you to be a daughter or a son of god and i want you to allow god's love to just wash over you just follow that commandment to consider how deeply loved you are And then, to those of you who are still struggling with this idea, I simply want to remind you, who you are is so much more important than what you do. You know, Ellen White... Ellen White sometimes catches a bad rap. I think Ellen White was an Adventist mystic. So I want to close with something she writes in Testimonies to the Church. Just keep considering God's love. Just stay in that space with God and listen to Sister White's words. It would be well to spend a thoughtful hour each day reviewing the life of Christ. From manger to Calvary, we should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene. It's not just Calvary. Calvary. It's the empty tomb and the second coming. It's your connection with Jesus. Consider how great the love of the Father is. Let us pray. The Protestant Reformers, Lord, said that we are simultaneously just and sinners, both beautiful and broken. We want to be known by you, but yet we continue to hide as we hear you walking in the garden in the coolness of day. And then we realize, we realize that your grace isn't a response to our sin, that your grace is, our, is your mode of being. And that the command that truly matters, at least in John's economy, is that we pause and silently consider how much you love us. And that it is that love that emboldens us to call ourselves your sons and your daughters. Let this church be a wealth of hope, Let this church recognize the value and care in every single one of those whom we encounter, for they bear your image. But more importantly, let us consider Jesus and Jesus crucified, and Jesus resurrected, and Jesus soon coming. We pray in his name. And all the people of God said, Amen.